Forgotten Classics, where a good story never goes out of style. I'm Julie, and this is episode 371 of Forgotten Classics, where we are almost smack dab in the middle, just a little past it, of The House of a Thousand Candles by Meredith Nicholson. Finally, some things are starting to happen. It's not just atmosphere, but before we get to that, I've got something with plenty of atmosphere, or maybe I think I mean personality. It's not a podcast highlight, it's an audiobook highlight of The Best Cook in the World Tales from My Mama's Table by Rick Bragg. I read this book in print. It is a hot book, hard to get at the library. And I could see why. Because, yes, it sounds like a cookbook, but really it's a combination food memoir, story of his family's history from his great-grandfather on down of Rick Bragg, who grew up, as he would say, my people are hill people in the North Carolina backcountry, I guess, or hills. (laughs) And... His mother is one of those cooks who she does it in smidges and handfuls and some and more and some more and a lot more. (laughs) Those are her measurements. And her cooking is really good of the kind of basic cooking that you're going to find in that region. So that's kind of dying out. His family's cooking was getting lost because it was all told in stories that would come up when somebody would ask for recipes. So when his mother was ill one time, Rick Bragg thought he better start getting some of this down. What that does is make for a book that is really a series of interesting stories so you follow the family history. The recipes are in there because the food is what holds the stories together. And Even when the recipes are read, those are just as entertaining to read and to listen to as the rest of the book, because there'll be things like, well, here's how you do chicken. And mama says, if you don't like to do chicken that way, you can do it like this. But she looked at me and I knew she meant I was never going to be able to do chicken right. That kind of thing. So there's a lot of personality there. The author, Rick Bragg, reads the book. And I enjoyed it so much that I said, oh, the library has the audiobook. I'll go ahead and get it. And I've got it sitting on my iPod just for in-between moments. Short drives when I don't want to really listen to anything that I've got to focus on, like in our time or something serious. And I want somebody to tell me a good story. He's got a great accent, which is just his accent, I guess, that North Carolina accent. And the way he tells the stories is like you're sitting at his kitchen table and he's just telling you while he cooks or while everybody eats or while you're shelling peas. I don't know. I really enjoyed it a lot. And for anybody who's worried about this, it is a family history that's got an amount of dysfunction in it. But because this is about the cooking, the dysfunction is kind of smoothed over. That's not what the book is about. So there's enough that you know it's a real family, but it's not enough to be in your face. Now we're going to talk about dysfunction, distressing, because I don't generally like those kind of books. 
This is just pure entertainment. And whether you want to cook or not, I think you'll like it. The Best Cook in the World, Tales from My Mama's Table by Rick Bragg. Now let's get on with our own old story, which is completely different than the one I just described to you. We have found that there's a secret passageway, or rather Jack Glenarm has, since it's all told first person and people hardly ever call him by his first name. I kind of forget what it is. I had to look it up. (laughs) And it connects the house with the chapel at the school where he hears an amazing organ playing. Of course, it's his girl with the red tam-o'-shanter, Olivia Gladys Armstrong. He now knows her name is. And she's amazingly good at it. Oh my goodness. And I enjoyed this encounter. They have a wonderful kind of a drollery and camaraderie. Of course, we want them to get together. I assume from how old this book is, they will. But there's still a certain amount of mystery. He doesn't know a lot about her. They just enjoy being together. So that was a lot of fun. The next thing that I found amazing was Pickering is in town, that dastardly lawyer who we do not trust, and he's hanging out with Bates, giving him orders, talking about how things are working. What's Morgan doing? What's Jack Glenarm doing? And (laughs) uh, Bates says, oh no, he doesn't have an analytical mind, as his grandfather would have called it. And he says, hearing yourself discussed in this frank fashion by your own servant is, I suppose, a wholesome thing for the spirit. And so he started getting really mad, as I can imagine. But then he's getting madder at himself for ever having tried to be fair to Bates. (laughs) This book just cracks me up. I also really enjoyed the fact that Pickering's like, oh no, I'm not going to meet with this guy. I don't need to. I'm just going to scoot out of town on my private car. And private car means private train car that they just pull off at the side for when they needed to get out and then hook onto whatever train's going on. I guess I must have known that kind of thing could happen. But it never really occurred to me that people would do it as a matter of course. Naturally, you'd have to have a lot of money for that, and Pickering does. But when he's encountered later at the train station where Jack sees all the girls going off for Christmas holidays and runs into Olivia again, where she looks a lot older and more sophisticated than he thought she should. And then Pickering is there. You just want to give Pickering a good smack. Of course, maybe that's not fair. I always want to give Pickering a good smack. I'm definitely on Jack Lenarm's side in this whole matter. So what we've got actually are a few more threads of mystery. What's going on? Why are people shooting at people? Why is Pickering all mixed up with Bates and Morgan? I mean, an explanation was given that, oh, Morgan's watching a property of his. I don't believe it. I know you don't either. All I want to do is listen to some more and find out what he discovers next. Don't you? Let's dive in. Chapter 15. I Make an Engagement The southbound train had not arrived, and as I turned away, the station agent again changed its time on the bulletin board. It was now due in ten minutes. A few students had boarded the Chicago train, but a greater number still waited on the farther platform. 
the girl in grey was surrounded by half a dozen students all talking animatedly as i walked toward them i could not justify my stupidity in mistaking a grown woman for a schoolgirl of fifteen or sixteen but it was the tam shanter the short skirt the youthful joy in the outdoor world that had disguised her as effectually as rosalind to the eyes of orlando in the forest of arden she was probably a teacher quite likely the teacher of music i argued who had amused herself at my expense it had seemed the easiest thing in the world to approach her with an apology or a farewell but those few inches added to her skirt and that pretty grey toque substituted for the tam shanter set up a barrier that did not yield at all as i drew nearer at the last moment as i crossed the track and stepped upon the other platform it occurred to me that while i might have some claim upon the attention of olivia gladys armstrong a wayward schoolgirl of athletic tastes i had none whatever upon a person whom it was proper to address as miss armstrong who was i felt sure quite capable of snubbing me if snubbing fell in with her mood she glanced toward me and bowed instantly her young companions withdrew to a conservative distance and i will say this for the st agatha girls their manners are beyond criticism and an affable discretion is one of their most admirable traits i didn't know they ever grew up so fast in a day and a night i was glad i remembered the number of beads in her chain the item seemed at once to become important it's the air i suppose it's praised by excellent credits as you may learn from the catalogue but you are going to an ampler ether a diviner air you have attained the beatific state and at once take flight if they confer perfection like an academic degree at st agatha's then i had never felt so stupidly helpless in my life there were a thousand things i wished to say to her there were countless questions i wished to ask but her calmness and poise were disconcerting she had not apparently the slightest curiosity about me and there was no reason why she should have i knew that well enough her eyes met mine easily their azure depths puzzled me she was almost but not quite some one i had seen before and it was not my woodland olivia her eyes the soft curve of her cheek the light in her hair but the memory of another time another place another girl lured only to baffle me she laughed a little murmuring laugh i'll never tell if you won't she said but i don't see how that helps me with you it certainly does not but it is a much more serious matter mr glenarm and the worst of it is that i haven't a single thing to say for myself it wasn't the not knowing that was so utterly stupid certainly not it was talking that ridiculous twaddle it was trying to flirt with a silly schoolgirl what will do for fifteen is somewhat vacuous for she paused abruptly colored and laughed i am twenty-seven and i am just the usual age she said ages don't count but time is important there are many things i wish you'd tell me you who hold the key of the gate of mystery then you'll have to pick the lock she laughed lightly the sombre sisters patrolling the platform with their charges heeded us little i had no idea you knew arthur pickering when you were just olivia in the tam maybe you think he wouldn't have cared for my acquaintance as olivia in the tam men are very queer but arthur pickering is an old friend of mine so he told me we were neighbors in our youth i believe i have heard him mention it and we did our prep school together and then parted you tell exactly the same story so it must be true he went to college and you went to tech and you knew him 
I began, my curiosity thoroughly aroused. Not at college, any more than I knew you at Tech. The train's coming, I said earnestly, and I wish you would tell me when I shall see you again. Before we part for ever, there was a mischievous hint of the Olivia in short skirts in her tone. Please don't suggest it. Our times have been strange and few. There was that first night when you called to me from the lake. How impertinent! How dare you remember that! And there was that other encounter at the chapel porch. Neither you nor I had the slightest business there. I admit my own culpability. She colored again. But you spoke as though you understood what you must have heard there. It is important for me to know. I have a right to know just what you meant by that warning. Real distress showed in her face for an instant. The agent and his helpers rushed the last baggage down the platform, and the rails hummed their warning of the approaching train. "'I was eavesdropping on my own account,' she said hurriedly, and with a note of finality. "'I was there by intention, and—' There was another hint of the tam-o'-shanter in the mirth that seemed to bubble for a moment in her throat. "'It's too bad you didn't see me, for I had on my prettiest gown, and the fog wasn't good for it. But you know as much of what was said there as I do.' You are a man, and I have heard that you have had some experience in taking care of yourself, Mr. Glenarm. To be sure, but there are times. Yes, there are times when the odds seem rather heavy. I have noticed that myself. She smiled, but for an instant the sad look came into her eyes, a look that vaguely but insistently suggested another time and place. I want you to come back, I said boldly, for the train was very near and I felt that the eyes of the sisters were upon us. You cannot go away where I shall not find you. I did not know who this girl was, her home, or her relation to the school, but I knew that her life and mine had touched strangely, that her eyes were blue, and that her voice had called to me twice through the dark, in mockery once, and in warning another time, and that the sense of having known her before, of having looked into her eyes, haunted me. The youth in her was so alluring, she was at once so frank and so guarded. Breeding and the taste and training of an ampler world than that of Annandale were so evidenced in the witchery of her voice, in the grace and ease that marked her every motion, in the soft gray tone of hat, dress, and gloves, that a new mood, a new hope and faith, sang in my pulses. There, on that platform, I felt again the sweet heartache I had known as a boy, when spring first warmed the Vermont hillsides, and the mountains sent the last snows singing in joy of their release down through the brook beds and into the wakened heart of youth. She met my eyes steadily. If I thought there was the slightest chance of my ever seeing you again, I shouldn't be talking to you here. But I thought, I thought it would be good fun to see how you really talk to a grown-up. So I am risking the displeasure of these good sisters, just to test your conversational powers, Mr. Glenarm. You see how perfectly frank I am? But you forget that I can follow you. I don't intend to sit down in this hole and dream about you. You can't go anywhere, but I shall follow and find you. That is finely spoken, Squire Glenarm. But I imagine you are hardly likely to go far from Glenarm very soon. It isn't, of course, any of my affair. And yet I don't hesitate to say that I feel perfectly safe from pursuit. And she laughed her little low laugh that was delicious in its mockery. I felt the blood mounting to my cheek. She knew, then, that I was virtually a prisoner at Glenarm, and for once in my life at least I was ashamed of my folly that had caused my grandfather to hold and check me from the grave, as he had never been able to control me in his life. 
the whole countryside knew why i was at glenarm and that did not matter but my heart rebelled at the thought that this girl knew and mocked me with her knowledge i shall see you christmas eve i said wherever you may be in three days then you will come to my christmas eve party i shall be delighted to see you and flattered just think of throwing away a fortune to satisfy one's curiosity i'm surprised at you but gratified on the whole mr glenarm i shall give more than a fortune i shall give the honor i have pledged my grandfather's memory to hear your voice again that is a great deal for so small a voice but money fortune a man will risk his honor readily enough but his fortune is a more serious matter i am sorry we shall not meet again it would be pleasant to discuss the subject further it interests me particularly in three days i shall see you i said she was instantly grave no please do not try it would be a great mistake and anyhow you can hardly come to my party without being invited that matter is closed wherever you are on christmas eve i shall find you i said and felt my heart leap knowing that i meant what i said good-bye she said turning away i'm sorry i shan't ever chase rabbits at glenarm any more or paddle a canoe or play wonderful celestial music on the organ or be an eavesdropper or hear pleasant words from the master of glenarm but i don't know where you are going you haven't told me anything you are slipping out into the world she did not hear or would not answer she turned away and was at once surrounded by a laughing throng that crowded about the train two brown-robed sisters stood like sentinels one at either side as she stepped into the car i was conscious of a feeling that from the depths of their hoods they regarded me with unchristian disdain through the windows i could see the students fluttering to seats and the girl in gray seemed to be marshalling them the gray had appeared at a window for an instant and a smiling face gladdened i am sure the guardians of the peace at st agatha's for whom it was intended the last trunk crashed into the baggage car every window framed for a moment a girl's face and the train was gone chapter sixteen the passing of olivia bates brought a great log and rolled it upon exactly the right spot on the andirons and a great constellation of sparks thronged up the chimney the old relic of a house i called the establishment by many names but this was i think my favorite could be heated in all its habitable parts as bates had demonstrated the halls were of glacial temperature these cold days but my room above the dining-room and the great library were comfortable enough i threw down a book and knocked the ashes from my pipe bates yes sir i think my spiritual welfare is in jeopardy i need counsel a spiritual adviser i am afraid that's beyond me sir i'd like to invite mr stoddard to dinner so i may discuss my soul's health with him at leisure certainly mr glenarm but it occurs to me that probably the terms of mr glenarm's will point to my complete sequestration here in other words i may forfeit my rights by asking a guest to dinner he pondered the matter for a moment then replied i should think sir as you ask my opinion that in the case of a gentleman in holy orders there would be no impropriety mr stoddard is a fine gentleman i heard your late grandfather speak of him very highly that i imagine is hardly conclusive in the matter there is the executor to be sure i hadn't considered him well you'd better consider him he's the court of last resort isn't he well of course that's one way of looking at it sir 
"'I suppose there's no chance of Mr. Pickering's dropping in on us now and then?' He gazed at me steadily, unblinkingly, and with entire respect. "'He's a good deal of a traveller, Mr. Pickering is. He passed through only this morning, so the mailboy told me. You may have met him at the station.' "'Oh, yes, to be sure, so I did,' I replied. I was not as good a liar as Bates, and there was nothing to be gained by denying that I had met the executor in the village. I had a very pleasant talk with him. He was on the way to California with several friends. That is quite his way, I understand. Private cars and long journeys about the country. A very successful man is Mr. Pickering. Your grandfather had great confidence in him, did Mr. Glenarm? Ah, yes, a fine judge of character my grandfather was. I guess John Marshall Glenarm could spot a rascal about as far as any man in his day. I felt like letting myself go before this masked scoundrel. The density of his mask was an increasing wonder to me. Bates was the most incomprehensible human being I had ever known. I had been torn with a thousand conflicting emotions since I overheard him discussing the state of affairs at Glenarm House with Pickering in the chapel porch, and Pickering's acquaintance with the girl in grey brought new elements into the affair that added to my uneasiness. But here was a treasonable dog, on whom the stress of conspiracy had no outward effect whatever. It was an amazing situation, but it called for calmness and eternal vigilance. With every hour my resolution grew to stand fast and fight it out on my own account, without outside help. A thousand times during the afternoon I had heard the voice of the girl in grey saying to me, "'You are a man,' "'And I have heard that you have had some experience in taking care of yourself, Mr. Glenarm.' It was both a warning and a challenge, and the memory of the words was at once sobering and cheering. Bates waited. Of him, certainly, I should ask no questions touching Olivia Armstrong. To discuss her with a blackguard servant, even to gain answers to baffling questions about her, was not to my liking. And, thank God, I taught myself one thing, if nothing more, in those days at Glenarm House.' I learned to bide my time. "'I'll give you a note to Mr. Stoddard in the morning. You may go now.' "'Yes, sir.' The note was written and dispatched. The chaplain was not at his lodgings, and Bates reported that he had left the message. The answer came presently by the hand of the Scotch gardener, Ferguson, a short, wiry, raw-boned specimen. I happened to open the door myself, and brought him into the library until I could read Stoddard's reply. Ferguson had, I thought, an uneasy eye, and his hair of an ugly carrot color annoyed me. Mr. Paul Stoddard presented his compliments and would be delighted to dine with me. He wrote in a large, even hand, as frank and open as himself. That is all, Ferguson. And the gardener took himself off. Thus it came about that Stoddard and I faced each other across the table in the refectory that same evening, under the lights of a great candelabrum which Bates had produced from the storeroom below. And I may say here that while there was a slight hitch sometimes in the delivery of supplies from the village, while the fish which Bates caused to be shipped from Chicago for delivery every Friday morning failed once or twice, and while the grapefruit for breakfast was not always what it should have been, the supply of candles seemed inexhaustible. They were produced in every shade and size. There were enormous ones, such as I had never seen outside of a Russian church, and one of the rooms in the cellar was filled with boxes of them. The House of a Thousand Candles deserved and proved its name. Bates had certainly risen to the occasion. Silver and crystal, of which I had not known before, glistened on the table, and on the sideboard two huge candelabra added to the festive air of the little room. Stoddard laughed as he glanced about. "'Here I have been feeling sorry for you. 
and yet you are living like a prince. I didn't know there was so much splendor in all Wabana County. I'm a trifle dazzled myself. Bates has tapped a new cellar somewhere. I'm afraid I'm not a good housekeeper, to speak truthfully. There are times when I hate the house, when it seems wholly ridiculous, the whim of an eccentric old man, and then again I'm actually afraid that I like its seclusion. Your seclusion is better than mine. You know my little two-room affair behind the chapel. Only a few books and a punching bag. That chapel is also one of your grandfather's whims. He provided that all the offices of the church must be said there daily, or the endowment is stopped. Mr. Glenarm lived in the past, or liked to think he did. I suppose you know, or maybe you don't know, how I came to have this appointment? Indeed, I should like to know. We had reached the soup, and Bates was changing our plates with his accustomed light hand. It was my name that did the business, Paul. A bishop had recommended a man whose given name was Ethelbert, a decent enough name, and one that you might imagine would appeal to Mr. Glenarm, but he rejected him, because the name might be too easily cut down to Ethel, a name which, he said, was very distasteful to him. That is characteristic, the dear old gentleman, I exclaimed with real feeling. But he reckoned without his host, Stoddard continued. The young ladies, I have lately learned, call me Pauline, as a mark of regard or otherwise, probably otherwise. I give two lectures a week on church history, and I fear my course isn't popular. But it is something, on the other hand, to be in touch with such an institution. They are a very sightly company, those girls. I enjoy watching them across the garden wall, and I had a closer view of them at the station this morning, when you ran off and deserted me. He laughed, his big, wholesome, cheering laugh. I take good care not to see much of them socially. Afraid of the eternal feminine? Yes, I suppose I am. I'm preparing to go into a brotherhood, as you probably don't know, and girls are distracting. I glanced at my companion with a new inquiry and interest. I didn't know, I said. Yes, I'm spending my year in studies that I may never have a chance for hereafter. I'm going into an order whose members work hard. He spoke as though he were planning a summer outing. I had not sat at meat with a clergyman since the death of my parents broke up our old home in Vermont, and my attitude toward the cloth was, I fear, one of antagonism dating from those days. Well, I saw Pickering after all, I remarked. Yes, I saw him too. What is it in his case, genius or good luck? I'm not a competent witness, I answered. I'll be frank with you. I don't like him. I don't believe in him. Oh, I beg your pardon. I didn't know, of course. The subject is not painful to me, I hastened to add, though he was always rather thrust before me as an ideal back in my youth, and you know how fatal that is. And then the gods of success have opened all the gates for him. Yes, and yet? And yet? I repeated. Stoddard lifted a glass of sherry to the light and studied it for a moment. He did not drink wine, but was not, I found, afraid to look at it. And yet, he said, putting down the glass and speaking slowly, when the gates of good fortune open too readily and smoothly, they may close sometimes rather too quickly, and snap a man's coat-tails. Please don't think I'm going to afflict you with shavings of wisdom from the shop floor, but life wasn't intended to be too easy. The spirit of man needs arresting and chastening. It doesn't flourish under too much fostering, or too much of what we call good luck. I'm disposed to be afraid of good luck. I've never tried it, I said laughingly. I am not looking for it, and he spoke soberly. I could not talk of pickering with Bates, the masked beggar, in the room, so I changed the subject. I suppose you impose penances, prescribe discipline for the girls at St. Agatha's, an agreeable exercise of the priestly office, I should say. His laugh was pleasant and rang true. 
I was liking him better the more I saw of him. Bless you, no. I am not venerable enough. The sisters attend to all that, and a fine company of women they are. But there must be obstinate cases. One of the young ladies confided to me, I tell you this in cloistral confidence, that she was being deported for insubordination. Ah, that must be Olivia. Well, her case is different. She is not one girl. She is many kinds of a girl in one. I fear Sister Teresa lost her patience and hardened her heart. I should like to intercede for Miss Armstrong, I declared. The surprise showed in his face, and I added, Pray don't misunderstand me. We met under rather curious circumstances, Miss Armstrong and I. She is usually met under rather unconventional circumstances, I believe, he remarked dryly. My introduction to her came through the kitten she smuggled into the alms box of the chapel. It took me two days to find it. He smiled ruefully at the recollection. She's a young woman of spirit, I declared defensively. She simply must find an outlet for the joy of youth, paddling a canoe, chasing rabbits through the snow, placing kittens in durance vile. But she's demure enough when she pleases, and a satisfaction to the eye. My heart warmed at the memory of Olivia. Verily the chaplain was right. She was many girls in one. Stoddard dropped a lump of sugar into his coffee. Miss Devereux begged hard for her, but Sister Teresa couldn't afford to keep her. Her influence on the other girls was bad. "'That's to Miss Devereux's credit,' I replied. "'You needn't wait, Bates.' "'Olivia was too popular. All the other girls indulged her, and I'll concede that she's pretty. That gypsy face of hers bodes ill to the hearts of men, if she ever grows up.' "'I shouldn't exactly call it a gypsy face. And how much more should you expect her to grow? At twenty a woman's grown, isn't she?' He looked at me quizzically. Fifteen, you mean. Olivia Armstrong, that little witch, the kid that's kept the school in turmoil all the fall. There was a decided emphasis in his interrogations. I'm glad your glasses are full, or I should say. There was, I think, a little heat for a moment on both sides. The wires are evidently crossed somewhere, he said calmly. My Olivia Armstrong is a droll child from Cincinnati, whose escapades caused her to be sent home for discipline to-day. She's a little mite, who just about comes to the lapel of your coat. Her eyes are as black as midnight. Then she didn't talk to Pickering and his friends at the station this morning? The prettiest girl in the world? Gray hat, gray coat, blue eyes? You can have your Olivia, but who, will you tell me, is mine? I pounded with my clenched hand on the table, until the candles rattled and sputtered. Stoddard stared at me for a moment, as though he thought I had lost my wits. Then he lay back in his chair and roared. I rose bending across the table toward him in my eagerness. A suspicion had leaped into my mind, and my heart was pounding as it roused a thousand questions. "'The blue-eyed young woman in grey! Bless your heart, man! Olivia is a child. I talked to her myself on the platform. You were talking to Miss Devereux. She isn't Olivia. She's Marion.' "'Then who is Marion Devereux? Where does she live? What is she doing here?' "'Well,' he laughed, "'to answer your questions in order,' She is a young woman, and her home is in New York. She has no near kinfolk except Sister Teresa, so she spends some of her time here. Teaches music? Not that I ever heard of. She does a lot of things well, takes cups and golf tournaments, and is the nimblest hand at tennis you ever saw. Also, she is a fine musician, and plays the organ tremendously. Well, she told me she was Olivia, I said. I should think she would. When you refused to meet her, when you had ignored her and Sister Teresa— both of them among your grandfather's best friends, and your nearest neighbors here. My grandfather be hanged! Of course I couldn't know her. 
we can't live on the same earth i'm in her way hanging on to this property here just to defeat her when she's the finest girl alive he nodded gravely his eyes bent upon me with sympathy and kindness the past events at glenarm swept through my mind in kinetoscopic flashes but the girl in gray talking to arthur pickering and his friends at the annandale station the girl in gray who had been an eavesdropper at the chapel the girl in gray with the eyes of blue it seemed that a year passed before i broke the silence where has she gone i demanded he smiled and i was cheered by the mirth that showed in his face why she's gone to cincinnati with olivia gladys armstrong he said they're great chums you know chapter seventeen sister teresa there was further information i wished to obtain and i did not blush to pluck it from stoddard before i let him go that night olivia gladys armstrong lived in cincinnati her father was a wealthy physician at walnut hills stoddard knew the family and i asked questions about them their antecedents and place of residence that were not perhaps impertinent in view of the fact that i had never consciously set eyes on their daughter in my life as i look back upon it now my information secured at that time touching the history and social position of the armstrongs of walnut hill cincinnati seems excessive but the curiosity which the rev paul stoddard satisfied with so little trouble to himself was of immediate interest and importance as to the girl in gray i found him far more difficult she was marion devereux she was a niece of sister teresa her home was in new york with another aunt her parents being dead and she was a frequent visitor at st agatha's the wayward olivia and she were on excellent terms and when it seemed wisest for that vivacious youngster to retire from school at the mid-year recess miss devereux had accompanied her home ostensibly for a visit but really to break the force of the blow it was a pretty story and enhanced my already high opinion of miss devereux while at the same time i admired the unknown olivia gladys none the less when stoddard left me i dug out of a drawer a copy of john marshall glenarm's will and re-read it for the first time since pickering gave it to me in new york there was one provision to which i had not given a single thought and when i had smoothed the thin typewritten sheets upon the table in my room i read it over and over again construing it in a new light with every reading provided further that in the event of the marriage of said john glenarm to the said marion devereux or in the event of any promise or contract of marriage between said persons within five years from the date of said john glenarm's acceptance of the provisions of this will the whole estate shall become the property absolutely of st agatha's school at annandale wabana county indiana a corporation under the laws of said state bully for the old boy i muttered finally folding the copy with something akin to reverence for my grandfather's shrewdness in closing so many doors upon his heirs it required no lawyer to interpret this paragraph if i could not secure his estate by settling at glenarm for a year i was not to gain it by marrying the alternative heir here clearly was not one of those situations so often contrived by novelists in which the luckless heir presumptive cut off without a cent weds the pretty cousin who gets the fortune and they live happily together ever afterward john marshall glenarm had explicitly provided against any such frustration of his plans bully for you john marshall glenarm i rose and bowed low to his photograph on top of my mail next morning lay a small envelope unstamped and addressed to me in a free running hand ferguson left it explained bates i opened and read if convenient will mr glenarm kindly look in at st agatha's some day this week at four o'clock 
Sister Teresa wishes to see him. I whistled softly. My feelings toward Sister Teresa had been those of utter repugnance and antagonism. I had been avoiding her studiously, and was not a little surprised that she should seek an interview with me. Quite possibly she wished to inquire how soon I expected to abandon Glenarm House, or perhaps she wished to admonish me as to the perils of my soul. In any event, I liked the quality of her note, and I was curious to know why she sent for me. Moreover, Marian Devereux was her niece, and that was wholly in the sister's favor. At four o'clock I passed into St. Agatha territory, and rang the bell at the door of the building where I had left Olivia the evening I found her in the chapel. A sister admitted me, led the way to a small reception room, where, I imagined, the visiting parent was received, and left me. I felt a good deal like a schoolboy who has been summoned before a severe master for discipline. I was idly beating my hat with my gloves, when a quick step sounded in the hall, and instantly a brown-clad figure appeared in the doorway. "'Mr. Glenarm?' It was a deep, rich voice, a voice of assurance, a voice, may I say, of the world, a voice, too, may I add, of a woman who is likely to say what she means without ado. The white band at her forehead brought into relief two wonderful grey eyes that were alight with kindliness. She surveyed me a moment, then her lips parted in a smile. "'This room is rather forbidding. If you will come with me—' She turned with an air of authority that was part of her undeniable distinction, and I was seated a moment later in a pretty sitting-room, whose windows gave a view of the dark wood and frozen lake beyond. "'I am afraid, Mr. Glenarm, that you are not disposed to be neighborly, and you must pardon me if I seem to be pursuing you.' Her smile, her voice, her manner were charming. I had pictured her a sour old woman, who had hidden away from a world that had offered her no pleasure. "'The apologies must be all on my side, Sister Teresa. I have been greatly occupied since coming here, distressed and perplexed even.' "'Our young ladies treasure the illusion that there are ghosts at your house,' she said, with a smile that disposed of the matter. She folded her slim white hands on her knees, and spoke with a simple directness. "'Mr. Glenarm, there is something I wish to say to you, but I can say it only if we are to be friends. I have feared you might look upon us here as enemies.' "'That is a strong word,' I replied evasively. "'Let me say to you that I hope very much that nothing will prevent your inheriting all that Mr. Glenarm wished you to have from him.' "'Thank you. That is both kind and generous,' I said, with no little surprise. "'Not in the least. I should be disloyal to your grandfather, who was my friend and the friend of my family, if I did not feel kindly toward you and wish you well. And I must say for my niece—Miss Devereux—I found a certain pleasure in pronouncing her name. Miss Devereux is very disturbed over the good intentions of your grandfather in placing her name in his will. You can doubtless understand how uncomfortable a person of any sensibility— would be under the circumstances. I'm sorry you have never met her. She is a very charming young woman, whose happiness does not, I may say, depend upon other people's money. She had never told, then. I smiled at the recollection of our interviews. I am sure that is true, Sister Teresa. Now I wish to speak to you about a matter of some delicacy. It is, I understand perfectly, no business of mine how much of a fortune Mr. Glenarm left but this matter has been brought to my attention in a disagreeable way. Your grandfather established this school. He gave most of the money for these buildings. I had other friends who offered to contribute, but he insisted on doing it all. But now Mr. Pickering insists that the money, or part of it at least, was only a loan. Yes, I understand. Mr. Pickering tells me that he has no alternative in the matter, that the law requires him to collect this money as a debt due the estate. 
"'That is undoubtedly true. As a general proposition, he told me in New York that he had a claim against you for fifty thousand dollars.' "'Yes, that is the amount. I wish to say to you, Mr. Glenarm, that, if necessary, I can pay that amount.' "'Pray, do not trouble about it, Sister Teresa. There are a good many things about my grandfather's affairs that I don't understand, but I'm not going to see an old friend of his swindled. There's more in all this than appears. My grandfather seems to have mislaid or lost most of his assets before he died, and yet he had the reputation of being a pretty cautious businessman. The impression is abroad, as you must know, that your grandfather concealed his fortune before his death. The people hereabouts believe so, and Mr. Pickering, the executor, has been unable to trace it. "'Yes, I believe Mr. Pickering has not been able to solve the problem,' I said, and laughed. "'But, of course, you and he will cooperate in an effort to find the lost property?' She bent forward slightly. Her eyes, as they met mine, examined me with a keen interest. "'Why shouldn't I be frank with you, Sister Teresa? I have every reason for believing Arthur Pickering a scoundrel. He does not care to cooperate with me in searching for this money. The fact is, he very much wishes to eliminate me as a factor in the settlement of the estate.' I speak carefully. I know exactly what I am saying. She bowed her head slightly, and was silent for a moment. The silence was the more marked from the fact that the hood of her habit concealed her face. What you say is very serious. Yes, and his offense is equally serious. It may seem odd for me to be saying this to you when I am a stranger, when you may be pardoned for having no very high opinion of me. She turned her face to me. It was singularly gentle and refined not a face to associate with an idea of self-seeking or duplicity. I sent for you, Mr. Glenarm, because I had a very good opinion of you, because, for one reason, you are the grandson of your grandfather, and the friendly light in her grey eyes drove away any lingering doubt I may have had as to her sincerity. I wish to warn you to have a care for your own safety. I don't warn you against Arthur Pickering alone, but against the countryside. The idea of a hidden fortune is alluring, a mysterious house and a lost treasure make a very enticing combination. I fancy Mr. Glenarm did not realize that he was creating dangers for the people he wished to help. She was silent again, her eyes bent meditatively upon me. Then she spoke abruptly. Mr. Pickering wishes to marry my niece. Ah, I have been waiting to hear that. I am exceedingly glad to know that he has so noble an ambition. But Miss Devereux isn't encouraging him as near as I can make out, she refused to go to California with his party. I happen to know that. That whole California episode would have been amusing, if it had not been ridiculous. Marian never had the slightest idea of going with him, but she is sometimes a little, shall I say, perverse. Please do. I like the word, and the quality. And Mr. Pickering's rather elaborate methods of wooing. He's as heavy as lead, I declared. Amuse Marian up to a certain point. Then they annoy her. He has implied pretty strongly that the claim against me could be easily adjusted if Marian marries him. But she will never marry him, whether she benefits by your grandfather's will, or however that may be. I should say not, I declared, with a warmth that caused Sister Teresa to sweep me warily with those wonderful gray eyes. But first he expects to find this fortune and endow Miss Devereux with it. That is part of the scheme, and my own interest in the estate must be eliminated before he can bring that condition about. But, Sister Teresa, I am not so easily got rid of as Arthur Pickering imagines. My staying qualities, which were always weak in the eyes of my family, have been braced up a trifle. Yes. I thought pleasure and hope were expressed in the monosyllable, and my heart warmed to her. 
"'Sister Teresa, you and I are understanding each other much better than I imagined we should.' And we both laughed, feeling a real sympathy growing between us. "'Yes, I believe we are.' And the smile lighted her face again. "'So I can tell you two things. The first is that Arthur Pickering will never find my grandfather's lost fortune, assuming that any exists. The second is that in no event will he marry your niece.' "'You speak with a good deal of confidence,' she said, and laughed a low, murmuring laugh. I thought there was relief in it. But I didn't suppose Marion's affairs interested you. They don't, Sister Teresa. Her affairs are not of the slightest importance. But she is. There was frank inquiry in her eyes now. But you don't know her. You have missed your opportunity. To be sure, I don't know her. But I know Olivia Gladys Armstrong. She's a particular friend of mine. We have chased rabbits together. And she told me a great deal. I have formed a very good opinion of Miss Devereux in that way. Oh, that note you wrote about Olivia's intrusions beyond the wall? I should thank you for it, but really I didn't mind. A note? I never wrote you a note until today. Well, someone did, I said. Then she smiled. Oh, that must have been Marion. She was always Olivia's loyal friend. I should say so. Sister Teresa laughed merrily. But you shouldn't have known Olivia. It's unpardonable. If she played tricks upon you, you should not have taken advantage of them to make her acquaintance. That wasn't fair to me. I suppose not. But I protest against this deportation. The landscape hereabouts is only so much sky, snow, and lumber without her. We miss her, too, replied Sister Teresa. We have less to do. And still I protest, I declared, rising. Sister Teresa, I thank you with all my heart for what you have said to me, for the disposition to say it. And this debt to the estate is something, I promise you, that shall not trouble you. Then there is a truce between us. We are not enemies at all now, are we? No, for Olivia's sake at least, we shall be friends. I went home and studied the timetable.